I loved going to Brookfield Zoo with my family. In fact, when my kids were little, we would go all the time. We would go on some of the most horrible weather days of the year when it was pouring rain. Or One time, I remember, it was below zero, and we packed up the family van, and we went to Brookfield Zoo. There was nobody else there, surprisingly. And uh, when we got done with our visit, we climbed back into our, our vehicle. It was the only car in the lot. And unfortunately, it was so cold out that the, the door latches had frozen in an open position, and so the doors wouldn't stay closed. So we took the scarf from one of the kids, and we tied one end to one handle on the inside, and then stretched it across their little laps and tied it to the handle on the other side. And that's how we made it home. I mean, just, we're just crazy about the zoo. Now, there is something about the zoo that makes me crazy as well, not a good thing. It's, it's the signs that they post outside of the ape house. Okay, one of the signs reads like this, and by the way, this is right off the zoo's website. Do you make decisions? Well, primates make decisions too. Everywhere you look, primates are choosing where to climb, what to eat, and how to behave. And just in case you missed the comparison that the zoo people are trying to tell you to note, they post another sign. Take a look in the mirror to see another primate. You! And check out the primate next to you. That's right, humans are primates too. Hey, check out the primate next to you today. You know, go ahead, pick a few fleas out of them and eat them if you'd like, all right? There is an entirely different picture of humans here in these signs than the one God has given us in the opening chapters of his book, the Bible. Okay, Genesis chapters 1 and 2 tell us that humans are extraordinarily unique among everything that God has created. In fact, we learn in Scripture that humans are the pinnacle of God's creation. Welcome to the first week in a five-part series that we're call, calling In the Beginning. This is a study of the first dozen or so chapters of the book of Genesis, the opening book of the Bible. In fact, if you brought a Bible, and I hope you'll bring a Bible with you as we study God's Word together, turn to Genesis 1. shouldn't have any trouble finding the very first book, the very first chapter. Get the outline from your, your program. And as you turn to Genesis 1, let me give you a little bit of background about this book of the Bible. In the Hebrew text, the book is called Bereshith. Say Bereshith with me. Bereshith. Okay, in ancient times, the way a book was titled is they would take the first word or words of the text that would become the book title. So if you open the Hebrew Bible, first word in Genesis 1, verse 1 is Bereshith. It means in the beginning. Good name for the book, in the beginning. However, around the second century BC, a group of scholars got together and they translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek. And so they renamed the opening book. They gave it a Greek name, which translated into English is Genesis. And Genesis means origins. Another good name for the book, because when you go to Genesis, you find the origin of the world, you, you find the origin of humanity, the origin of sin and its disastrous consequences. The origin of nations, the people groups that God has made. The origin of God's plan of redemption. So origins is a good name for the book as well. Genesis was written by a guy named Moses in about the 15th century B.C. So 1400 and something B.C., uh, Moses put pen to paper, came up with Genesis under the inspiration of God's spirit. You heard of Moses before. He's the guy who led God's people out of slavery in Egypt to the promised land. He wrote five books of the Old Testament, the first five, which are sometimes referred to by Bible scholars as the Pentateuch. Now, what do you think Pentateuch means? Five books. See, sometimes scholars are really clever as they name things. Hey, what should we call the first five books? How about five books? Yeah, okay. So Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Now, we're going to look at Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. In Genesis 1, we have a description of the six days of creation. Now, Bible scholars debate, and when I, when I say Bible scholars, I don't mean the very liberal kind who think this whole book is a myth. I'm talking about Bible-believing, Christ-honoring Bible scholars debate whether the days described in Genesis 1 refer to literal 24-hour days. God made the whole universe in less than a week 
or whether these days, another way to interpret the Hebrew there is these days are ages, long periods of time, or whether this is just a poetic description of creation, not a scientific description. Uh, If you want to know more about that debate, we did an entire sermon on it in a series a couple of years ago, jot this down, 2010, October, we did a series called Q2. So if you want to go online and find it, look for the Q2 series, the message, Does Creation Conflict with Science? But today we're not going to go there. Today we're going to take a look at the pinnacle of God's creation. Now, I wish we had the time to cover everything God made in those six days because it's awesome. God is an awesome creator. Uh, if we had the time, I would love to wow you with facts, like the fact that there are, there are 400,000 galaxies out there with over 100,000 stars in every one of them. Or at the other extreme, there are over 17,000 species of butterflies, over 20,000 species of daisies. See, not 20,000 species of flowers, 20,000 species of daisies. And God's created it all, macro and micro. The word create, by the way, is not not given to anybody else in Scripture besides God. People make things, but only God creates out of nothing. God is an awesome creator. If we had all the time in the world, we, we would take a look at each day of creation. But today our intention is to just zero in on the pinnacle, the apex, the high point of God's creation. And what do you think that is? Humans. Now, some of you uh, cynical types, you're thinking, isn't it a bit arrogant to say as a human being that human beings are the pinnacle of God's creation? And yes, this would be an arrogant claim if we humans were making it for ourselves. But this is what God says about humans in the opening chapters of his book. So let me give you four truths about humans from Genesis 1 and 2 that underscore our uniqueness, our supremacy in God's creation. And by the way, as you follow along in this outline, I had to to supply the outline in the middle of the week, and so I put three applications at the end, but as I studied further, I just worked the applications into the four points. So when we get to those applications, uh, we won't have time to cover them. You'll have already heard them. If it really bothers you that you've got blanks you haven't been able to fill in, Just get over it, okay? (laughs) So here's number one. Humans are spiritual, okay? Number one, humans are spiritual. I I read something very disappointing about the pop diva Madonna this past week. Uh, Madonna does not want to share any of her DNA with you or me. You know, I know that disappoints you, okay? But... An absurd article, I I learned that Madonna, after every concert, she's so paranoid about anybody stealing her DNA that she has a special sanitization, a sterilization team that goes into her dressing room and removes every trace of hair or skin or saliva, anything, because she doesn't want you having her DNA. So sorry, you'll never get it. But here's the good news. You've got God's DNA. You have got God's DNA. Now, if your Bible is open to Genesis 1, let me read verses 26 and 27 to you. You may have heard these verses before. Then God said, okay, this is after God has made everything else, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. No other aspect of God's creation, do we read this about, that God created humans in his image. Obviously for a relationship with himself so as to commune with himself. God made us spiritual. Your dog is not spiritual, okay? Hate to tell you, I love my dog. I think Zoe's about the best dog there is, but Zoe was not made in the image of God. Okay, Zoe was not made for the purpose of communion with God. You were, I was. We're made as spiritual beings. Now, I want to take a look at a verse in the second chapter of Genesis that says the same thing. So turn over to Genesis chapter 2, and as you turn the page, let me say a, a couple of very interesting things about 
moving from Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis 2. First thing is this. Okay, Genesis 1 is like a big picture story of creation. In Genesis 2, we zero in on one aspect of creation, humanity. Okay, it's kind of like doing Google Maps if you've ever done it. So you want to you take a look at your house, so you click on Google Maps and you get a picture of the world, and then you zoom in and you get North America, and then you zoom in and you get Illinois, and then your neighborhood, and then your house. Okay, when you move from Genesis 1, you, you zoom in from a picture of everything, heavens and earth, that God has made, and Genesis 2 focuses in on humans because humans are the focal point, they're the apex, they're the pinnacle of God's creation. That's why. That's why we get a special look at humans in Genesis 2. Another thing that happens between Genesis 1 and 2 that underscore this fact is that God gets a new name in Genesis 2. Okay, in Genesis 1, the name for God is Elohim, Hebrew Elohim. It's translated into English simply God. It's a very majestic name. Elohim speaks of God's majesty, his power as creator of the universe. But when you get to Genesis 2, Moses starts referring to God as Yahweh Elohim, which is translated into English, Lord God. Some of you sang that new song we learned in worship today, Yahweh, Yahweh, and you're wondering, you know, who in the world is Yahweh? It's Lord God. Yahweh is a personal name. It's the name that God goes by among his people. It's a name that connotes faithfulness and love and mercy. So again, as the picture zeroes in on humans, what we're being told is that we are very special to God. God has created us for communion with himself. We're spiritual beings. Now, take a look at verse 7. We're going to see this in verse 7. Chapter 2, verse 7, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. The first line of this verse doesn't make it sound as if humans are spiritual beings, does it? God made the original man from, from what? The dust, the dust of the ground. In fact, in, in Hebrew, the word man here is the word Adam. We get the name Adam from that. And the word ground is Adama. And so what we're being told is man is ground. Not too impressive, is it? I went to a biology textbook this past week. I learned that man is a chemical concoction. The average sized man, 58 pounds of oxygen, 2 ounces of salt, 50 quarts of water, 3 pounds of calcium, 24 pounds of carbon, and a dash of chlorine, phosphorus, fat, iron, sulfur, and glycerin. Nothing but a chemical concoction, not spiritual chemical. Ah, but... Take a look at verse 7 again. God takes this chemical concoction and it says, He forms it, the dust of the ground, into a man and he breathes into this man's nostrils the breath of life. A couple of very important words and phrases there. The word formed doesn't say God made the man, doesn't say God created the man. Two verbs that could have been used. The verb, special verb, formed is chosen because it's a verb that gets translated elsewhere in the Old Testament describing a potter's forming of his lump of clay. It's a very intimate experience, a hands-on experience. Gets the full attention of the potter as he shapes it and molds it into exactly what he wants it to be. That's what God does with humans. And then he takes this man that he's formed and he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. This is said about no other living creature. God breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. Very intimate, very personal experience. One Bible scholar writes, this is a face-to-face -face intimacy being described. The image presented is one of the closest possible contact and relationship between God and man. You get the idea, God, God made humans, God made you to be a spiritual being so that he can enjoy a relationship with you. Now here's some bad news, I'm going to let Jameson tease this out next week when we talk about the fall of humanity. 
But we're spiritually dead because of our sin. This spiritual nature that God has created within us gets killed by our sin. And the only way to get it back is to surrender to Jesus Christ who died on the cross to pay for your sins and who rose from the dead with the power to give you a new life, with the power to rebirth your spiritual nature. So if, if, if you don't know Jesus, if you've never surrendered to Jesus, you're still spiritually dead. Now before we conclude today, I'll tell you how to get alive spiritually. Uh, but right now, let's move on to the second truth about humans. Number one, humans are spiritual, created by God to be the pinnacle of his creation for communion with God, relationship with God. Number two, humans are missional. Okay, when God creates humans, he gives them a mission. He gives them a special purpose in life. And once again, this is what makes us the pinnacle of God's creation. And let me say to you, if you're not yet dialed into God's mission for your life, if you're sitting here under the sound of my voice today, one of our four campuses, and you don't know what God's mission is for your life, then you're missing out on the very reason for which God created you. So let's take a look at a couple of verses in Genesis that spell this out, this mission. Go back to chapter 1. We looked at verses 26 and 27. God creates people in his image. Verse 28, let me read it to you. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, there are several instructions in this verse, but the most important is the little two-word phrase, rule over. If you've got your own Bible, circle that. Rule. That's the mission that God's given us. God is the sovereign king over the universe, but this verse tells us that he chooses to rule planet Earth through the people he's made in his image. Now, some of you are thinking, well, aren't you blowing this little two-word phrase out of proportion and making a big deal? We're rulers over the planet? Come on. Well, actually, this is an idea that you'll find repeated throughout the Scripture. One of my favorite places where it's stated is in Psalm chapter 8, written by King David. I can almost picture David looking at a starry sky on a clear night, and he says in Psalm 8, when I consider your heavens, God, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? I'm so small, so insignificant. I'm not a big deal. But then David continues, and yet you made him, you made man a little lower than the heavenly beings. You crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. Wow. That's, that's our mission. Our, our mission is to rule over everything. And when, when I say this is our mission, by the way, let me emphasize, this is men and women. Okay, verse 28 of chapter 1, where we're given this commission to rule over the planet, comes right after verses 26 and 27, where we learn that people are made in the image of God, male and female. He created them, it reads. So this is not a case of men rule, women drool, okay? This is not a case of men, they were made to be kings and women were made to be, you know, whatever. No. Men and women made in the image of God, given the mission of ruling, being co-regents over planet Earth. Now, what does that look like, practically speaking, to rule over the Earth? Well, let's take a look at what it, what it meant to Adam, the first man. So we go to chapter 2, and again, we get the narrower picture. So we zoom in first on Adam, because Eve hasn't been created yet. As we get to, to chapter 2, we start over at the beginning. Look at verse 8. What does it mean for Adam to rule over the planet? Verse 8. Well, the Lord God, that's the new name by which he goes, Yahweh Elohim, had planted a garden in the east in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. Go down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. To work it and take care of it. Let me note something very important from these two verses, and that is that God has blessed humans with the capacity to work. This is a blessing to, to work. 
Now, sometimes we speak of work as if it's a curse, you know, when you got to get up on Monday morning to go to work, or when you got to do homework for school, or when you got to shovel your drive or mow your lawn, or what, you know, this, this is a curse. And this is what the Bible says, right? People have told me, well, the Bible says work is a curse. Genesis 3. Jameson will cover this next week and correct the wrong impressions, but some people say Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sinned, God shows up, punishes them. What's the punishment for Adam's sin? You got to work. Well, that's not what Genesis 3 says. Genesis 3 says that the consequence of his sin is that sin taints his work, so it's not nearly as rewarding as it used to be, and at times it's going to be downright difficult. But that's what sin does to every aspect of our lives. It, it, it makes it problematic. That's the nature of sin, but the nature of work itself is to be a blessing. I mean, God gives Adam work to do before Adam ever sins. In fact, God himself, Genesis 2 verse 2, when he's done creating the heavens and the earth, we read that this was his work. God works. So work is a good thing. Work is how we fulfill God's mission for our lives to rule over the earth. Of course, now listen, this assumes that we're doing our work for God. This assumes that we do our work to accomplish God's purposes in our world. Go back to verse 15, Genesis 2. I read to you a moment ago. I want you to note a couple of verbs in this verse. We're told that Adam is put in the Garden of Eden to work it, circle the word work, and to take care of it, circle the verb take care of. Two interesting verbs in the original Hebrew text. The word work gets translated elsewhere in the Old Testament as worship. Same word. Work, worship. Here it's translated work, other, other places, worship. The verb take care of, the other verb. Adam takes care of the garden, is also used in Old Testament contexts to speak of obeying God's word. Take care that you obey, that you do everything God has said to do in his word. You say, where are you going with this? Here, here's the observation I want to make. Isn't it interesting that when Adam's work in the garden of, of Eden is described to us, two verbs are used that refer to worshiping God and obeying God's word. In other words, there was a God-centeredness to Adam's work. I mean, Adam did what he did in order to please God. Adam did what he did in order to advance God's cause in the world. This reminds me of something the Apostle Paul writes, Colossians 3, verse 23. Paul is speaking to bosses and to employees, and he says, Whatever you do, work at it as for the Lord. Work at it as if you're working for the Lord. Same thing being said here. That's Adam in the Garden of Eden, working to please God, working to advance God's cause. Now, practically speaking, what, what does this mean? Well, let's start with your job. You know, in terms of your vocation, whether, whether you're a carpenter or you're a school teacher, you know, whether you're a receptionist or a stay-at-home mom, an IT specialist, a high school student, a banker, or whatever, it means you show up for your job for God-centered reasons. Like what? Well, you think about it. What does it mean to do what you do, whatever your work is in the course of a day, to do it as unto God? Well, it means you do it so as to serve people. That would please God. It means that you do it so as to bring God up in conversation. He wants you to be his ambassador at school, in your workplace, wherever. It, it means that you make money. You say, well, making money pleases God? Well, it, it depends on how you use it. If you know what you're making money for, not only to meet your own needs, but to meet the needs of other people. See, if you're only making money to have a better vacation... Well, that's not God-pleasing, but if you're making money because you know that you could be generous with it and meet needs, now you're working for God. Okay, it means that you're making your widget or you're providing your service or you're doing whatever it, it is you're doing so as to please him, so as to make the world a better place in his name. See how this works? You, you show up for work for God's sake, and your job is not the only place where you do this. What about when you come to church? You come to work. You come to roll up your sleeves. 
You, you come to do something to advance God's, God's cause. What about in your home with your family? Well, you don't show up at the house strictly for a meal or a place to sleep or to sit in front of the TV in your, your lounge chair. You, you show up to serve the other people there, to advance God's cause, to do what you do, to find some work to do for God's sake. Humans are missional. You know, we've been created by God to rule over the earth. How do we do that? We do that by working so as to please God, so as to advance Christ's kingdom. Th this kind of purpose Driven living is unique to humans, friends. This kind of purpose-driven living is unique to humans. My dog, Zoe, is not sitting at home right now trying to figure out ways to advance Christ's kingdom. In fact, I can guarantee you that my dog, Zoe, is sleeping on my bed where she's not supposed to be right now. See, if you want to be like the animal kingdom, then just go through your day with no bigger purpose than to serve yourself. If, if you want to be one of those special humans made in the image of God for his purposes, then go about your day working to advance Christ's kingdom, to be Christ's ambassador, to please God in all that you do. You get it? Good. Let me give you a third mark of humans. Humans are moral. Humans are moral. I, I read an interesting editorial in the L.A. Times last week. It was a response to some scientific research that had just come out, and the research, the summary of it, went like this. This is a capsule summary. Okay, They discovered, when it comes to the mating habits of animals, that animals are basically polygamous. Okay, They go through multiple sex partners. And so, said this study, since humans are animals... Shouldn't we expect humans to be polygamous, not monogamous, one sex partner for life? That's unrealistic. That's unnatural monogamy. Well, the L.A. editorial writer wrote a scathing response to this, and, and he said, are, are you kidding me? Many of our greatest achievements come because we work against nature, what comes naturally to us. You know, whether it's mastering a violin or scaling a mountain, we, we often work contrary to our natural instincts to accomplish great things. The article summed up, was summed up with this final line, a case can be made, in fact, that people are being maximally human when they do things that contradict their biology. Monogamy, for example, can foster an ever deeper intimacy between partners to say nothing of family stability. I read this and I thought, yeah. What this writer is saying, to use biblical terms, is that God created humans with the capacity to make moral decisions, decisions that often override our natural inclinations. So when it comes to sex partners, my dog is always going to do what's natural. But God created me to do what's moral. You see the difference? You know, let me speak for a moment to those of you who are 30 or under, because you're facing a world that is increasingly using this argument to justify any sort of behavior. Well, it's natural. God has called you, God has designed you, God's made you to be moral, and sometimes being moral will override your natural inclinations. You might grow up in a, in a family, for example, where parents were alcoholics, and your natural bent, you know, in your genes may be a predisposition toward alcoholism. Do you say, do you capitulate and say, well, that's natural? Or do you say, no, God has made me a moral human being to respond differently to this? You see how this works? Now, on, on what basis do we make moral decisions? How do we determine what's moral? Go back to the text, chapter 2. I read verse 15 to you. Let me read verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. So God puts Adam in this virtual paradise with all sorts of, of trees from which he is free to eat, but God adds one simple prohibition to the mix. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is a test. 
This is only a test. Adam is faced with a moral choice. Is he going to obey God or disobey God? And the consequences of that choice are carefully spelled out for him. Again, that's what it means to be a moral individual. It's to understand consequences. We're moral beings. That's how God has made us. We have the capacity to distinguish between right and wrong. Now, unfortunately, that, that capacity is hampered in part by our tendency to use faulty standards for determining right and wrong. I mean, how do we do this in our culture? How do we determine right from wrong? You know, there's a whole camp of people who say, well, it's up to an individual's judgment. And that's why you hear people saying frequently to you things like, don't push your moral values on me, or I'll make up my own mind what's right and wrong. Thank you. Is that a good idea? Everybody making up their own mind what's right and wrong? read an interview with Cameron Diaz this past week, the actress, and, and she said, you know, I just think it's wrong to expect people to live together in a marriage for a lifetime. She, she said, we're, you know, we, we like variety, and so my plan is going to be, I'm, you know, I'm going to hook up with a guy for like five years, and when that's done, I'll move on to another relationship for five years, and probably another one after that, and so on. This is a quote. She said, I don't think that's wrong. Well, you know what? If Cameron Diaz is the final standard of what's right and wrong, then it isn't wrong. It's whatever she wants to do. Crazy way to run a world, let me tell you. So everybody just do what you think is right and wrong. Okay, when you leave here today from our four campuses, you get in your car, and if you want to drive down the street in the center lane at 20 miles an hour while you're texting your friend, do it. If you want to do 75 to get home quickly, go ahead. Let's all do what we think is right in our own eyes. Yikes. Now, there's another camp of people, and they say, well, yeah, you got to have safeguards, got to have checks and balances. So it's not what individuals say, it's what society says. It's society's standards that keeps us from making mistakes. So society determines what's right and wrong, eh? So if, if you were living in 1930s Nazi Germany, it was okay to put Jews in cattle cars and send them to concentration camps for the health of the nation. Because that's what society taught. Oh. Friends, it's never a good idea to determine right and wrong on the basis of what others are doing. You know, your, your peer group says sleeping with your boyfriend is, you know, it's okay. Your company says that Stretching the truth a bit to close the deal, that's okay. Everybody does it. Your government says taking the life of an unborn baby in its mother's womb is is okay. Are these things okay? Do we determine okay, right, and wrong on the basis of society's standards or even, for that matter, society's laws? If something is legal, does that make it right? Oh, God, help us if we have to stand before Almighty God someday and we try to justify ourselves on the basis, but God, it was legal. Individuals don't determine morality. Societies don't determine morality. God determines morality. Look again at the opening line of Genesis 2, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded, the Lord God commanded the man. God's commands recorded in his word, they determine what's right and wrong. And quite frankly, it doesn't matter if you feel that a certain command you come across in Scripture is stupid or irrelevant or outdated or narrow-minded. I would bet that Adam eventually came to look at the command to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in this way. Oh, that's ridiculous, God! But unfortunately, that conclusion led Adam to make a tragic moral decision. And so I would say to you, don't don't fall prey to thinking that you or your society knows better than God. God made you a moral being, and 
That's to walk in obedience to his commands. That's to make decisions that will often override your natural inclinations. This is why, friend, this is why it's so important that you know God's word so that you have a well-informed sense of right and wrong. And if you're not soaking, if you're not saturating your life with this book, then guess what is forming your standard of right and wrong? It's your friends, it's the movies you go to, it's society's laws, it's whatever, but it's not God. And so get into the book. Pick up a Bible reading schedule. If you've never been a Bible reader, start reading the book every day. You won't understand everything you read, but just start plowing your way through it. Get in a community group. Study it with other people. When you come on a weekend and you listen to a, a sermon, jot down notes. If God is speaking to your heart about something, write down so you remember what God said. God is, has created us to be moral beings who walk in obedience to his word, but that assumes you know what the word says. Fourth and finally, humans are relational beings. I like this part. Now, we got a huge chunk of Genesis 2 left to cover. So let me begin reading at verse 18 to the end of the chapter and then draw a few insights from it before we close. We are relational beings. Verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field, all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, but for Adam no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. As I've told you before, this is to be read. She shall be called woe, man. Okay? <laughs> For she was taken out of the man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife. They will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. You know, you go through the first chapter of Genesis, six days of creation, God makes one thing after another, and after he makes it, he steps back, he sees what he made, he's made, and God concludes that it's good. So God says, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that it was good. God says, let there be dry ground, and there was dry ground, and God saw that it was good. I'm not here in the other campuses, come on. God forms living creatures, and he sees that it is good. And you come to the end of Genesis chapter 1, you read a summary statement in verse 31. God saw all that he had made, and it was, say it with me, very good. Very good. And you fast forward to chapter 2, verse 18, and for the very first time, you read God conclude that something is not good. It's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's... Oh, that's not good. What is it that's not good? Call it out. That man should be alone. Now, what's God's concern here? Is it just he doesn't want Adam to be lonely, to feel lonely, to have nobody to go to a movie with, split a pizza with, play Frisbee with? I suppose he could play Frisbee with a golden retriever, but... You know, is that God's concern? In context, let me tell you what I think God's concern is. It's not Adam's loneliness, it's Adam's mission. Now, we, we've already learned that Adam was given a mission. What's his mission? To rule over the planet. Okay, so now Adam is faced with this mission of ruling planet Earth on his own. And God looks at Adam and says, not a good idea. This is not good that man should be Alone. For the sake of his mission, he needs a companion. Now, friends, there's a great takeaway for our lives here. God has made us relational beings, but the best relationships are missional. 
don't miss this. The best relationships are missional. Why, why do you think guys go off to war and they come back and they've got this incredible bond with the other fellows in their troop? It's because they, they were on a mission together. If you want a good friendship, if you want a good marriage, let's work on the marriage part. If you want a good marriage, you know, it's not enough to set aside a, a date night or to do a study guide on marriage in a community group, to have good sex, it helps. You know, good communication skills, yeah, those are all important. But if you want a great marriage, it needs to be missional to the extent that you can make it such, depending on whether your spouse is a believer or not, when the two of you are both determined to serve God, to live for Him, to advance His cause, it makes for a partnership like no other. The best relationships are missional. Say that with me. The best relationships are missional. Now go back to verse 18. A few things I want to observe here about the relational nature God has hardwired into us. The first couple of insights come out of the, the phrase, God makes a helper suitable for Adam. You see that in verse 18? Now, you all know that this is moving in the direction of a marriage, right? First marriage, Adam and Eve. You know, but, but I want you to know that the bigger principle here is that of relational beingness. And so, so there's something to be learned if you're single. There's something to be learned from this passage. Now, the first thing we learn comes from the word helper. God decides to make a helper for Adam. Now, when you first read that, that word, it's easy to think of it as somewhat demeaning. So, oh, I get it. So Eve is nothing but Adam's assistant, right? I mean, Adam is the big cheese who's been given a mission to rule the world, and Eve kind of comes behind him mopping up and making Adam look good. It's not what the word helper means. In fact, the word helper, the title helper is used 21 times in the Old Testament. 15 of the 21 times, who do you think the word helper refers to? Call it out. God. God is our helper. So when you hear that God is going to make a helper for Adam, namely Eve, don't think wallflower. Don't think low-level assistant. Okay? Don't think somebody who doesn't have a mission of her own to look after. Think co-ruler. Think partner. Remember what Matthew Lund said in this regard last week? He was talking about story. We're all writing our own story. He said, unfortunately, we all treat ourselves as if we're the central actor in the story and everybody else has nothing but supporting cast. Don't go through life like that. See the important role that God has called others to play in your life. Now, the other part of that phrase I want to drill down into, this is a helper suitable for Adam. You see that? The word suitable? What does that mean? Again, it sounds somewhat demeaning. It sounds as if God is making Eve just to fit Adam, okay? So Adam's the guy with the agenda, and Eve has been created to meet Adam's needs. But the word suitable doesn't mean that. The word su Listen, here's the Hebrew. The word suitable means equal but different. Equal but different. Now, if you keep that in mind, you'll avoid two extremes when it comes to your perspective on men and women. Okay, at one extreme, there are those who think that men have been made to rule over women. They're superior somehow. Uh, suitable means equal, but different. At the other extreme, there are some who would tell us that their men and women are interchangeable. Same deal. Okay, same roles in the, in the family. Now, equal but different. So we'd have to assume that God has designed, designed men to be better suited for some roles, even within a family, women better suited to others. What are those roles? Well, it's a good thing I've just run out of time here, so I'm not going to be able to touch on those. <laughs> hey, if you think I'm going to go that direction, forget it. You work it out in your marriage. But just keep in mind this principle, equal but different. As you engage other people, equal 
but different. And so you learn to appreciate the differences, what they have to contribute to your life, what you have to contribute to theirs. A couple other notes, and then we'll wrap it up on what it means to be a relational being. Look at verses 19 and 20. God has Adam name all the animals. Why? You know, one Bible scholar writes, this is God's awareness program. <laughs> what is it God wants to make Adam aware of? that there isn't a single animal on the planet that can meet his relational needs. Look at the closing line of verse 20, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Friends, listen. We need people in our lives. You know, we need deep friendships. We need strong marriages. We need to guard against becoming so busy, so self-absorbed, so preoccupied when we have a free moment with movies, video games, the internet, that we fail to develop face-to-face, -face, conversant, missional relationships with other people. You know, what, what could you do this week to further develop the relational side of your being. What could you do? For some of you, maybe it's joining a community group. You've been putting it off. It's time to throw your hat over the fence and do it. Or it may be calling a friend and saying, let's, you know, do Starbucks and sitting down and over coffee, taking the time to dig deeply into each other's lives. It may mean doing a special favor for a friend at school this week or something around the house for mom and dad's sake. It may mean as a parent guarding, protecting the dinner hour so you actually all sit down together and look at each other's face, have conversation. God has designed us to thrive best on relationships with others. And then the last thing I want to draw your attention to in Genesis 2 that speaks to our, nat our nature as relational beings has to do with ribs, not barbecue ribs, looking at Adam's rib. Verse 21, don't you find that interesting? You know, how did God make Adam? Took the dust of the ground, formed it into a man, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Now God's going to make a second human. Why doesn't he do the same thing? Why does he this time around take a rib out of Adam's side and fashion a woman out of it? You've got to believe this is intentional. What does God want us to see here? I love the way one biblical scholar, a Puritan by the name of Matthew Henry, said it all the way back in the 1700s. In fact, you've probably heard this quote before. Matthew Henry said, The woman was not made of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be loved. And everybody said it's Valentine's week. Oh. Write this down, guys. Put it on your card next time around. What if every husband in this place at our four campuses treated his wife this way? Now, she doesn't rule over me, but she's not my doormat. She's not my servant, my slave. She's, she's been taken from my side so that I'll treat her as an equal and I'll love her. What if we treated everybody we meet this week in this way? What if we started really loving people as if, listen, as if God had made them right out of a rib from our side? Our neighbors, even the guy whose dog barks at midnight. Some of us don't even know the names of our neighbors three doors down. You know, that would be the place to start. This is why I'm always banging the drum for canning hunger. It's a real simple program you could find online at Christ's Community where several times a year you collect canned goods from your neighbors, both to fill the food pantry in town, but even more importantly, just an excuse to get to know your neighbors by name. You pick up their canned goods and you say, hey, by the way, I forget your name, not that you ever knew it. You say, yeah, tell me again what your name is. You write it down. You get to know your neighbors. What about the people at work? What if you loved them? Looking at them this week as if they'd been taken out of your very side. The classmates you run into in the halls, in the cafeteria, in your science classroom, your teachers, 
as if they'd been made right out of your side? What if you saw the people of Nicaragua, of Sierra Leone, of Bangladesh, of the places we send go teams, and you said, These pe- it's like they've been made out of my side. This is why I'm going to set aside eight, nine, ten days of vacation time and go on a go team trip. Serve people, because I love people. God wants you to be a people lover. Second greatest commandment, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Number two, love your neighbor as yourself. People are the pinnacle of God's creation because we're spiritual, made so as to be able to relate to God, because we're missional. We've been given a job to do, and as we go about our work in the course of this week, we do it so as to advance God's cause, to make God famous. Moral, we no longer get our our sense of right and wrong from our culture, but we get it from God's Word and begin to immerse ourselves in this book and relational. We start loving people as if they've been made from our side. I'm going to ask you to stand with me for closing prayer, and as we stand here in St. Charles, I'm going to turn things over to our other campuses and allow them to close in prayer at the same time. Let's pray. As you're bowed before God, let me just remind you when I say amen, there are prayer team members on the far sides of the auditorium and they would just love to pray about anything going on in your life that you'd like somebody else to care about and bring before Almighty God. And as we we bow before God, I said earlier in the service that if you've not surrendered to Christ, you're spiritually dead. God's made you a spiritual being so you can relate to him, but spiritually you're dead. Your sins have killed you. What are you going to do right now? Pray from your heart and mean it. God, please forgive me. God, my sins have made me insensitive to you. In fact, according to the scripture, spiritually dead. But I understand that Jesus died on the cross for me so my sins could be forgiven. And I put my hope and my trust in him. And I say, please forgive me. And I understand that Jesus rose from the dead and has the power to make me spiritually alive, to make me a brand new creation, to make me able to relate to you. That's what I want. Come, give me that spiritual life. Jesus, I want you to be my king. I want to follow you. I want to walk in obedience to you. I want a great relationship with you. And Father, as as we close, and some have prayed that prayer, I would ask God, just give them the initiative to stop at the Welcome Center and pick up a next steps packet so they could take another step in a relationship with you. But for the rest of us who've made that decision, God, to Today and this week, might we recall that you've made us missional beings. May we seek out your purposes for our lives. May we do what we do as unto you, to please you, to advance your cause. May we soak ourselves in your word this week so that we could become uh, true moral beings whose sense of right and wrong is informed by your holy word so that we're not shaped by the world. And God, may we be relational people who love others with the love with which you've loved us. We pray in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen.